You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hidden Wasp backdoors Linux systems and aims at more than the usual coin mining or DDoS. Thousands of Huawei and ZTE devices remain in U.S. federal networks. It takes time to fully implement a ban. China considers retaliation for the U.S. entity list as the U.S. works to bring its allies on board. Baltimore may have been warned about its vulnerable servers as long as five years ago. NSA celebrates 20 years of their Centers of Academic Excellence in Cybersecurity. And NetScout sees signs of a coming IoT hacking campaign. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, May 31st, 2019. Security firm Intizer described Wednesday the operations of Hidden Wasp, a campaign that installs a backdoor into Linux systems. Most Linux-focused malware has tended to concentrate on coin mining or distributed denial of service, and it's also tended to be, relatively speaking, observers say, heavy-footed and noisy. Hidden Wasp, in contrast, is not only relatively stealthy, but also has, as its aim, the control of infected devices by the attacker, and many who've commented on the back door see this as a new and disturbing development. Hidden Wasp borrows freely components of Mirai, the Chinzi Elkanot implant, the Azazel rootkit, and the Linux version of WinTi have all been seen in its code. Attribution remains unclear, but some think it looks like an operation with Chinese origins, either with criminal organizations or intelligence services. AT&T Cybersecurity's Alien Labs, for one, tells SC Magazine that they've concluded, with high confidence, that Hidden Wasp falls under the Winti umbrella, a set of groups associated with China. Intizer says that Hidden Wasp's infrastructure bears some similarities to some of the recent Winti Linux variants researchers at Alphabet Security Unit Chronicle have been discussing. It's got a user mode rootkit, a Trojan, and initial deployment script that bear a family resemblance to those Winti strains. Intizer also sees other signs of connection to China. They say that files were uploaded to VirusTotal using a path that contains the name of a China-based forensics outfit, Shenzhou Vont Yun Information Technology. The malware implants, Intizer thinks, may be hosted in servers from a Hong Kong hosting company, ThinkDream. It's worth noting that Hidden Wasp seems to have escaped detection by most antivirus software. This will doubtless change as the defenders adapt to the new malware. Forescout tells NextGov that some 4,000 Huawei and ZTE devices remain on U.S. federal networks. The security company reasonably notes that purging networks of all the devices in a given category is often harder than just issuing a simple make-it-so. You can't just rip them out, a representative of the firm said. 
TechCrunch reports that Huawei is, on an interim basis at least, trying to limit the damage of U.S. measures by limiting contact between its U.S. and Chinese workers. This response to placement on the U.S. entity list seems to be a bit of a scramble as the company works its way through the consequences of U.S. action. The Chinese government itself has announced that it's compiling an evidently retaliatory blacklist of what it calls unreliable U.S. companies. It's already indicated an intention to stop using Windows on the grounds that, for all Beijing knows, Windows could be exploited by the U.S. for espionage purposes. China is also considering a halt to exports of rare earth metals, which are vital to the solid-state electronics industry. The U.S., however, shows few signs of relaxing the pressure on Huawei. President Trump is widely expected to make British action of some kind against the Chinese device manufacturer, a condition of the continuing and very close Anglo-American intelligence sharing arrangements. It's unlikely in the extreme that Five Eyes' collaboration would be completely dismantled, but an impasse over Huawei would have unfortunate effects on the special relationship. Turning to what is, for us, local news, Baltimore's IT office seems to have played Cassandra to the city's King Priam and Queen Hecuba. It warned in an undated risk assessment memorandum that seems on internal evidence to have been prepared between August 2016 and September 2017 that servers running unsupported versions of Windows posed a clear risk. The memo, according to the Baltimore Sun, specifically called out the likelihood of ransomware attacks and observed that the two critical servers in question were also not being regularly backed up. So there appears to have been a trifecta of questionable decisions, continuing to use outdated software, failure to patch when that software was given an upgrade, and neglecting to back up critical systems. And like Cassandra, the authors of the risk assessment were fated to be disbelieved, or at least ignored. Baltimore's mayor and city council have sought, with some support from parts of Maryland's congressional delegation, notably Representative Ruppersberger and Senator Van Hollen, to shift blame for the mess over to the federal government. Specifically, they've pointed the fingers at Charm City's hometown intelligence agency, NSA. But this line of self-exculpation may not have legs for much longer. The Robin Hood ransomware, first of all, wasn't an NSA tool, whatever casual reporting may have led one to believe. The initial infection was probably through a commonplace phishing attack, nothing that required the dark arts of Fort Meade. But the ransomware did appear to exploit the eternal blue vulnerability that NSA is widely believed to have discovered and then held back for operational use. Still, the shadow brokers blew the gaff in 2017 when they dumped Eternal Blue onto the web, and warnings and patches have been available for a good two years. NextGov reports that NSA's Rob Joyce said yesterday that, while everyone feels bad for Baltimore, the city did, after all, have two years in which to patch. Chris Tonyas, a former Baltimore City CIO who resigned in 2014, said he tried to get the city to upgrade the servers back then, but without success. He put it more brutally than NSA did. He told the Baltimore Sun, They rolled the dice and they lost. I really have no sympathy. Researchers at security firm NetScout warned this morning that people should expect an upswing in IoT hacking campaigns. Since the end of April, their honeypots have been collecting a surge in exploit attempts directed against routers affected by a vulnerability in the Realtek software development kit. 
The vulnerability, CVE 2014-8361, is being used to deliver and install a version of the HackEye DDoS bot malware. HackEye is most often used in distributed denial-of-service campaigns. Who's conducting the campaign and why remains unclear, but it's known that most of the attack traffic originates in Egypt and that it seems most interested in routers located in South Africa. The Long War Journal reports that ISIS, now in its diaspora phase, was quick to go online to claim responsibility for a suicide bombing in Afghanistan's Marshall Fahim National Defense University in Kabul. Inspiration and franchising appear to be the caliphate's post-territorial approach. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program. Quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Justin Harvey. He's the Global Incident Response Leader at Accenture. Justin, it's always great to have you back. Uh, We wanted to focus today on ransomware, some of the things that you all are tracking when it comes to that. What can you share with us? Well, Dave, what I can share with you is there's been a dramatic trend increase in targeted ransomware. Targeted ransomware is, is a lot different than your normal commodity ransomware. When you think about ransomware, you think about random emails showing up that have been blasted out to millions of people. Someone clicks a link and boom, their hard drive or or their documents uh, have all been encrypted with with an automatically generated link that says click here, deposit a a Bitcoin into this wallet and we'll email you the key. There has been a dramatic turn into something a little bit more nefarious. Now, cyber criminals, instead of 
penetrating an organization and finding the high value assets and taking them out of the enterprise, they're just simply encrypting them in place because they've realized that when you steal data, you have to monetize that. You run the risk of dealing with law enforcement. You've got to deal with the dark web and finding a buyer and registering underground forums. Listen, from a criminal's perspective, I'm sure it's pretty onerous to go through all of those processes when in fact, you can just go where the data is and encrypt it. Sometimes using uh, the victim's own tools, you can encrypt the file, you can encrypt the disk, and then, of course, you send an anonymous email back to the victim and say, hey, I need this many Bitcoins in, it in order to return the data to you. And what's worse is we're also seeing a startling trend where in order to cover their tracks or to create quite more of an impact or impetus for the victim to pay, they're also compromising domain admin credentials and pushing the ransomware out to the entire enterprise using very valid and normally used tools that administrators are using to push normal software updates out. Now, uh, help me understand uh, this. I've, I've heard folks say that if you find yourself uh, falling victim to ransomware, one of the things you should do is make a copy of all that encrypted data so that, you know, if the bad guys come back and try to wipe that data or if your attempt at decrypting it is unsuccessful, you'll even though it's still encrypted, you'll have a copy of that encrypted data. Is that is that on the money? I think that that's a very valid uh, strategy, but I think that that breaks down when you start to look at the scale at which some of these incidents are happening. We're, we're talking mm. about organizations that have 5, 10, 15, 50,000 endpoints uh, in an enterprise, and there's simply no way to copy all that data. Clearly, if you have some high-value assets like your customer database, credit card database, something that is more centralized, absolutely, 100%. Copy that encrypted data, but I would say that for the most part, you're you're not going to be able to handle an incident of that size just by copying that data. And what's the advice that you're sharing with your clients these days when it comes to whether or not to pay the ransom? Great question. I am I'm a hardliner, Dave. I say under no actually under one circumstance should should an organization consider paying, and that would be if there is a material impact to loss of life or damage to the environment. For instance, is an entire oil refinery gonna blow up and affect the, uh, the quality of life for an environment or for a city? Or mm. is it a hospital, can they, can they still get care to their patients? And, it, and if all of that is at risk, I think you should definitely uh, consider it and consider working with your local law enforcement office before making that sort of decision. But if you do go down that route, uh, and believe me, Dave, there's a lot of cons to paying uh, the these criminals. And one of them is thinking about the regulatory filing aspect of this, because if you don't acknowledge it within your quarterly or yearly filings, and if it was a sizable payment, then if it does come out, you could be nailed for not notifying uh, shareholders. The other mm. thing is you may not even know who you're paying. So if, if you are uh, paying uh, an entity and it turns out that later on that was a sanctioned entity, perhaps a country or a terrorist organization, that will also have to come out in your filings, which could have a material impact in stockholder value. Yeah. So keep those backups current and uh, make sure you test that they're actually working, right? Yeah, I can't say enough about uh, both uh, hot, warm, and cold backups. So definitely keep uh, some of your backups around in the cloud, on-prem. Keep them around so that you can quickly roll back. But in some cases, those backups themselves have also been encrypted. 
So what you're going to need is definitely uh, some longer-term storage. Uh, there are some organizations out there, some businesses that store them in big, cooled warehouses for you. But a little trick here, make sure that you keep your manifest of backups out of harm's way. Because you mm. don't want to be in a circumstance where you're like, well, we need to restore this server, but the manifest for which backups to pull from are on this encrypted file server over right, here right so you yeah. you want to you want to think through having an all-out disaster uh, recovery scenario which is a little bit different than having to restore a data center because most organizations today they think okay i've got four data centers and i have the cloud so as long as i don't lose everything at once i'm okay i always have i always have a hot spare well, in the event of some of these crippling cyber attacks we've been working, everything is down. Voice over IP, email, calendar, contacts, legal, file systems. So you have to think to yourself, how are you going to communicate and work that incident if everything that you normally rely upon is down? Well, Justin Harvey, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Dave. My guest today is Diane M. Janicek. She's Commandant of the National Cryptologic School at the National Security Agency. She joined us recently in our studios to recognize 20 years of NSA's Centers of Academic Excellence in Cybersecurity program. The program brings together colleges and universities along with industry to help bridge the cybersecurity skills gap, establish rigorous standards for academic programs in cybersecurity, and to provide a pipeline for cybersecurity professionals. We started our conversation with a look back at the program's inception. At the time, there was, a, there was more cyber attacks occurring, more with the military and the defense, in the defense areas. And we were recognizing that the need to secure information networks was tremendous. And what the need was is, as you probably would guess, there was no textbooks back then. Mm. You really didn't even have academic professors. You wouldn't even have professors that could teach cybersecurity at the collegiate level, let alone even at the high school level. So from going from nothing to a full on-ramp in terms of now having programs at the college level, at the a community college level, through the Ph.D. level in cybersecurity has really been tremendous for the country. Take me through uh, some of the ways that the program has evolved over the years. What changes have you seen? Well, we're recognizing now that we have to focus more on what's on the horizon. So we've now established a designation for CAE-research. Uh, so you can be a research institution so that you can take a look at what technologies on the horizon, what innovation is occurring in the area of technology that we might have vulnerabilities that we're not thinking of. We all see what's going on with respect to Internet of Things and social media and all the vulnerabilities that, are, that may occur there with respect to all the uh, connections that we have in everyday lives and everything that we do. So recognizing that, we, are, we partnered with the schools. We now have rigorous standards in the area of, re of research. We have uh, standards now at the advanced levels with the master's and Ph.D. level. And so we're just trying to really say, what do we need to do as a country to come together and say, what are our adversaries, whether they be foreign adversaries or even within our own country? What are adversaries doing to address and uh, attack our networks? And what do we need to do to come together to respond to those? So we've really embraced the two-year programs for the community colleges. We also really embraced older workers or more seasoned workers that want to cross-train. Mm. So if you're, if you're right now working maybe in the healthcare sector, but you also want to branch out a little bit and do maybe the work on the cybersecurity side of healthcare, which is really important, you can now do that as well through the cross-training efforts that we have with these academic institutions um, at these 272 schools across the country. 
Yeah, I, I, one of the things that really impresses me about the program is the breadth of it. Um, you know, one of my partners on the CyberWire is uh, his name's Joe Kerrigan, and he works at Johns Hopkins. And of course, you all partner with them. But then also here locally, you work with Howard Community College, and so. There really is op- opportunities from elite schools to institutions that are available to everyone and, and beyond. Thank you for raising that. We absolutely agree with you. It is for the best, really high-end institutions as well as the local community colleges. What Howard County Community College is offering is tremendous, as well as Prince George's Community College and Arundel Community College. They're so diverse. And what the goodness about the program is, is that once you join the CAE program, you, be- you belong to a community. They actually have an institution, a, a legal entity that they've created called the CAE Cybersecurity Community. They come together. They share resources. They'll share curriculum. They'll share cyber labs. They'll share training resources. You don't have to recreate material from scratch. They share information. They share opportunities for students to then go from a two-year program to a four-year program to a master's program. The cybersecurity community is very, very innovative. What they recognize now is they had to come together to give students an opportunity to get hands-on experience. They've created opportunities where there's partnerships with over 50 businesses where they can recruit from virtual career fairs for for these students. So the CAEs, through the program over the course of of 20 years, the CAE schools have come together, really leveraged each other, shared resources, and really have made this country a better place. And so it really is reaching beyond those uh, college-level institutions. You're going down to the high school level, the middle school level, really building that pipeline, getting them while they're young, sparking that interest in them. Absolutely. The CAE program, through its 20-year history, has created a sense of community. So not only do they have a community with the colleges and the, you know, the, the federal government across, the, across all the different states, they've established a community right where they are, right in their local area. What can you tell us about what the colleges get out of it? Is this a feather in their cap that they can then then go uh, talk about and say, hey, we're a part of this? Absolutely. Our schools that are the CAE certified, you will see that designation prominently on their websites. Hmm. They absolutely say, we have met the standards that are being expected us for a rigorous curriculum. That will also show not just the curriculum is a high standard, but the professors, the faculty are also well-credentialed. They are skilled in the area that they're teaching. They're not just teaching something they don't have familiarity with. Hmm. So you know when you go to a CAE school that you will get faculty that understands the discipline for which they're teaching. In addition to that, they also have an opportunity to have scholarships uh, for their students while they're attending the schools. The neat thing in the Department of Defense is that they're recognizing now that we need to have something akin to a cyber ROTC program. It's called the DOD Cyber Scholarship Program, and it's essentially is recruiting high schoolers to go to one of the CAE schools, attend one of the CAE schools on scholarship, and then do a couple of years with the federal government in a particular area and serve back. And it really is, the cyber uh, ROTC program is really the first of its kind. And that is definitely a feather in the cap for those institutions that are getting those students. So through the programs like the CAE program, what NSA is really committed to doing is increasing the pipeline of cybersecurity professionals We are especially committed also to increasing the pipeline with more female and minority involvement. The diversity part of cybersecurity is so important. As we know now, and we all be experiencing this with cybersecurity, it's multidisciplinary. It's not just the technology side. You have to understand multifacets, 
the diversity that's out there with respect to having different viewpoints on a team is really important. Making sure that there's a, a in the team effort that all team players feel that it's safe to share information, that they're included in that response. So diversity and inclusion is really important, and we're hoping to achieve that as well in the area of STEM and cyber through the CAE program. One last thing I wanted to mention is that NSA can't do this alone. We do this through our partnerships with, the fed, with other federal agencies. We do this with the state involvement as well, with industry involvement. Through the federal government, um, through grants, through the grants process, NSA has invested over $100 million annually in support of academic partner programs through educational grants, through research, through recruitment efforts. We recognize that this whole country can benefit from a rigorous academic program such as these through the sharing that occurs as a result of it, through the community that's created. And it's very, very powerful. And we really appreciate uh, the CAE schools rising to the occasion, agreeing that there's a need to raise the bar, agreeing that our whole country benefits from cybersecurity professionals. And we just value the partnerships that we have. Our thanks to Diane M. Janicek from NSA for joining us. If you want to learn more about the Centers of Academic Excellence in Cybersecurity, visit the NSA website. It's in the resources section. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.